Welcome to the Call Guys podcast, co-hosted by Kevin Hopp and Ronan Passar. This podcast is all about sales development and the art and science of building high-performing outbound sales teams. Tune in weekly to hear live cold calls and also to hear Kevin and Ronan interview some of the top names in sales development. Let's dive right into this week's episode and see what we can learn. And we are alive, but that's an amazing introduction. So you guys were actually in the same, what was that? Like a meetup? We're in a community call. Shout out Ant, Ant, Natoli and Tom Alamo. They have the sales community. I was on there as the guest speaker, quote unquote. And Kevin's like, Mm -hmm. I have a question, but hold on. You've got this YouTube channel. Why are you not doing sales coaching? Quit your job today and go do that. So I'm happy to be with the call guys today. And we're trying to help some people with sales-related activities. That's what it's all about. Heck yeah. Well, Trent, I'm glad you remembered me from that because I, I kind of... I, I was in that sales community for a while and I saw some of the speakers come through and I went to one of them and it wasn't that impactful. But then I saw you pop up. and I'm like, dude, this is like the guy who's like nailing cold calling on YouTube. And I had a YouTube channel that I'm just like posting podcasts to and it's not doing anything for me. And I go look at your channel. I'm like... Oh my God, this guy is, this guy is like the next, you know, Mr. Beast, the Mr. Beast of cold calling. And, Dude, and I, I was trying to encourage you, like, go all in on it, man. This is, this is sick. Fun style of Mr. Beast, just to put everything in perspective, because I'm sure based on the view count we'll get here and like B2B content, very hard to create. Mr. Beast posted a video recently that got 47.5 million views in the first 24 hours, which is the most viewed longer form video ever behind one video you probably won't be able to guess what it is it's it's will smith slapping um chris <laughs> chris, chris uh chris yeah whatever chris his Rock. name is but to put in perspective imagine getting 47.5 million people to watch your video in the first 24 hours a 16 minute video it's insane that is insane yeah yeah he seems to have uh not just dominated the algorithm but I love what he does too. He keeps like one upping himself with the ridiculousness of what he's doing. And it, it really, really works. It's like, it's like my dream job. Like, isn't that all of our dream jobs? Like he like took over a cruise ship for a day and gave away money and like plays football, Tom Brady. And it's like, what the, come on, man, this is awesome. It's all because he's got the followers. That's true. He's got the followers. Fun fact. He once came here to Pacific beach and I didn't know he was here and I'm walking along the beach and I see uh, this table, this vendor selling jewelry and the person says to someone else who walks by, Hey, take one. It's free. And I like did a double take. So I, I'm like, Oh, what did you say? Like take up. And they're like, yeah, some guy came by and bought out the whole table and then told me to give it away. I was like, what do you mean some guy? And they're like, his name is Mr. Beast. Do you, have you heard of him? Apparently he's like a YouTube sensation. And I turn, I was like, which direction did he go in? And they were like, they pointed. So I ran that way. He's like 6'4". And he just walks around with like three buddies and they all have cameras. And he was just shooting right there on the boardwalk. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You, you you were probably thinking, okay, free item, lead magnet. What email list do you want me to subscribe to? What do you need from me five seconds <laughs> <Yeah>. later? <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. But um, Kevin, let's get, let's get into it, man. Um, I wanted let's. to... Dive in here with Trent. So for those of you who don't know, Trent here has this incredible YouTube channel uh, where he gets into cold calling tactics. He's the Mr. Beast of cold calling on YouTube. <laughs> Shout out Pat. There's a guy named Patrick Dang. I would consider yes. him the number one 
be, I don't want to say B2B creator, but he's not necessarily niche tech sales. He's, he's the top of the leaderboard, but we're definitely, we're definitely up there. It, it's not easy creating B2B content. So I love doing stuff like this, but you know, yeah. you didn't, you didn't start there, right? So I'm, I'd love to start at the beginning, which is like, tell us a little bit of how you broke into the cold calling world into tech and tell us a little bit about that journey uh, of how you went from SDR into AE. Cause I think there's a powerful st- story there for, for a lot of our listeners. I started my tech sales career in 2018 at a billion dollar revenue software company. We ended up going public, went private, got acquired, all all these different things. You can look me up on LinkedIn if you want to find out the backstory. But I started there, no experience, no connections, never had an internship. That whole spiel didn't perform well the first month, was one of the lowest performing reps. And I started scratching my head, is sales for me? Do I need to do something else? Do I need to go to marketing? Do I need to do customer success? Although I don't think those teams want me because I'm a month into my career. And early on, I realized, hey, it's a volume game. If you don't have the natural talent, even if you do have the talent, it's still a volume game, especially those first few years. And anyone that tells you otherwise has not actually done sales before because that's the reality. So I just decided, you know what? I'll make all these calls. I'll do as many outbound calls as I can. I needed to go find all of my own leads. I was given some some warm inbound leads from time to time, but I was outbound. So I did do prospecting. Fast forward 60,000 outbound cold calls later, six promotions from a sales developer up level one to an account executive level five at the same company. I then became an account executive at that company, generated 1.54 million in recurring revenue my first nine quarters. So you can break that down verified at a large software company. About halfway through the career, I decided, you know what, I'd like to start making money online. That sounds pretty cool. I didn't ever have the desire to just leave the workforce, but it was, hey, I see these YouTubers, Graham Stefan, making a million dollars a year out of revenue, selling no products. It's 2020. I'm forced to work from home. If I don't start now, I'm never going to do it. So I just decided to go all in, started creating personal finance content, didn't work very well because I wasn't that wealthy. So I decided, hey, what do I actually do? What do I like? What do I know about tech sales? And that's what led to this magical moment of let me just start creating content, documenting my SDR career, how I'm doing it, promoting, started posting on LinkedIn. And that's what led led to what I'm able to do today by not having a corporate W-2 income and being able to rely self-sufficient income as a result of building that personal brand. But the career, the savings from that, the experience and the skills, invaluable. So super grateful for that experience and opportunity. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like you you had uh, quite the ride there. I got to be honest. I'm jealous. If you look at my LinkedIn... I have not been at any one tech startup for more than a year and a half. I've always been a part of a layoff or I've been asked to leave or something happened in the first three, four years of my career. I was not able to go at one company and like ride it up. You know, fun fact, like half the companies that I've worked for don't exist anymore within like five, six years. (laughs) I worked at very early stage organizations. So I think that's, uh, it's been an incredibly fortunate journey for you. Um, that you got to go so far at one company. Would you say that's pretty rare? Like, do you get most of the people who come to you that say like, Hey, I've been at this company for a year and a half or it's, I just feel like it's pretty rare to stay somewhere for that long. When I started our SDR class sales development reps, we had about 12, 14 of us. 
And two years after I started, when I became and promoted to an account executive, there were only about four of those reps still at the company. So what I find is that these tech companies recruit loads of SDRs right out of college, no experience, entry level. And and they don't expect, like, for example, Gartner, they'll hire hundreds of reps. Not many of them will make it to the actual closing role. Fisher Investments, I, I used to sell an employee retention Things. So all these companies hire a lot of young people, expect a lot of attrition. So what I've noticed is there's a lot of impatience out there in the market. People immediately face adversity, maybe for the first time in their life, like I did. And they say, you know what? Let me go to another company where it's going to be easier. Let me go to another company that's going to pay me a little bit more. Let me go to this other company because it's the shiny new object. And I always valued loyalty in my mind. So I never wanted to go. I wanted to do whatever it took to make it work at that opportunity. And I did the best I could to stay for as long as I could. It ended up, I was, uh, I left the company for a variety of reasons and we can get into that story. Not my choice. Um, so I value loyalty and I wanted to stay at the company, but I don't see many people really rising the ranks because there's so much mobility out there and it's so easy to access these other opportunities and there's ripe for opportunities. So people tend to job hop. I used to be very pro loyalty, but I'm, I've now switched my stance to believe that companies truly do view you as a number, whether mm. you like to accept it or not. Everyone is expendable from the mailroom employee to the CEO. Every single employee is expendable. Once you leave, the business continues forward. You retain some of those relationships. So it's all about where can I gain the most experience, knowledge, build my skill set that will then prepare me to achieve the objectives I have later in life. You know, it's it's interesting that uh, the the point you make about like companies are not you know they're, they're going to treat you like a number. This is a this is like an our generation thing. I think we're all millennials here, right? Like the three of us are millennials. Trent, I'm I'm assuming you're like our age, right? You're probably 27. a little younger. Twenty seven. Yeah. See, Ronan's like almost old enough to be your dad. He's thirty three. <laughs> and, and I'm thirty one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like my, it's interesting. I, I try to talk to the men in my family about this and they just, they just can't relate. My dad's about to retire after 36 years at the same company that he started at after college. Oh, my uncle. Oh, he's, you know, 34 years at the same company. It's, it's such a millennial problem, but it's a millennial truth that the market moves really quickly. Right. Um, and that loyalty is just so rare. My dad also has a pension. Like that's a word that like my daughter who's two years old, she won't even know what that word means because <laughs> it'll be such an ancient thing by the time she's in the workforce. Like, what do you mean I get money every month until I die for, for nothing for, you know, for years of service, but like interesting. Decades, Whatever, are you going to make a point? Decades of yeah. service. Oh, yeah, I, wanted to, I wanted to get into the, uh, the point you just made, Trent, which I think is a valuable nugget for people who are thinking about their next thing and like what to look for, which is what are some of those signals that you would tell your younger self to look for if you were going back into a first SDR role, right? So some of the things that would allow for your ability to have the growth. Uh, ideally, you're at a company where you're not selling a product that's on the decline, what would you look for? When I accepted my opportunity at the software company I started my career with, I got super lucky because I in college, I wasn't aware that technology was an industry, software, SaaS was this growing space. I didn't understand it. My objective was to get a sales job in a big, big city outside the state of Ohio. And I fortunately was able to navigate my way through all these different employers, manufacturing sales jobs. I got an offer from Camping World to go sell these RVs. 
um, all these different random companies. So I got super lucky in, in looking back and analyzing and the work I'm doing now, helping people break into tech, you definitely, you can bucket it into larger companies and, and more of that startup type atmosphere of a company. So I would define a larger company by let's say like 200, 50, 500 employees plus like established product market fit. Clearly there's growth. There's a couple dozen salespeople and, and it's an established company. And given that, that could be like a $50 million revenue company opposed to a billion dollar revenue company, really big change based on resources and, and enablement and marketing and, and, and all the, and, and whatnot. But, but I would advise folks to look for bigger companies, more established product market fit, clear growth, strong funding, and if they're public, definitely make sure you're aware of the financials, what's going on with the company. Are they unprofitable? Are they going to go out of business, for example? Because those bigger companies will train you. They'll provide you with the resources. And most importantly, they're this fertile ground for networking and building connections. Because I think those early career connections that you make in your hiring class and in adjacent roles earlier in your career, those are the connections that will potentially shape the rest of your career. So I always recommend going to a more established company, get that on your resume, learn how they operate. And then eventually you can take the bigger risk for startups. Because Kevin, I imagine you join some smaller companies, less product market fit, maybe not a strong balance sheet. And then all of a sudden they find themselves out-competed out of business for a variety of reasons. And it just wouldn't provide the same experience as a bigger company for better or worse, because you probably learned a much more versatile skill set than someone who started at Salesforce, for example. So there's pros and cons to everything, but, but, but I think you'll start to feel that out in the interview process and you'll just feel it right. And it's always meant to be. Yeah. It's uh, the meant to be part is interesting, right? Cause like, it was definitely a vibe that I was looking for. And the, the more like, you know, the nicer I had to dress going to an interview, the more uncomfortable I felt about the opportunity. So I interviewed at some bigger companies and I was like, you know, having to like wear a tie or something. I'm like, ugh, like I, I just don't think this fits for me. And then like, you know, my first job out of college where I was for a year and a half, I was the first hire at a tech startup. Like I was the first guy. Like it was me and the CEO back to back building the company. So to your point, incredible amount of, uh, experience, but at the same time, like super volatile, super volatile to get, to get going at early companies. So let's talk about experience for a little bit because, you know, Renan and I, the call guys, we are all about cold calling. We know that you talk a lot about cold calling on your YouTube channel. Well, can we get a little tactical here? Can we get a little, let's lift it under the hood. Like what is Trent looking for? What, what if you're going to go make a, go do a call blitz? Like what's, what's step one, two, and three here? Like how do you approach cold calling? Yeah. Yeah. So right now I'm doing a new type of sale and I'm, I'm not selling software, but I'm selling for a different company. And, and it's, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll just walk you through the exact process I'm doing right now. So whether you're a rep at a company with no resources and you have to go identify new accounts to prospect into, that's what I'm doing right now. It's much harder than being at a company that gives you accounts. Hey, you're an SDR. You align with these three account executives. Each of them have... 250 accounts in their book of business. You can only work those accounts. That is so much easier. And that is a gift compared to finding companies on your own. But the, the, the first step is you got to do a territory plan. You got to really understand who you're reaching out to. Because if you're just calling to call, if they say, Hey, you got to go generate five meetings a month, X amount of pipeline, make all these calls. You got to make sure those inputs will yield 
the best results possible. So what I mean by territory plan is look at the companies you are targeting. So for example, what I do is I make a list. What are the top 50 companies that have the highest potential to spend with me to maximize revenue potential? The more revenue the company makes, the bigger pipeline amounts you're going to be able to yield, the bigger deal sizes you're going to work, the harder it's going to be to get in with them potentially. It it depends how you're compensated. You sort of want to game that, but just you got to make sure you're reaching out to the right companies, the right industry. If, If you're working on a company today and you sell a software to all industries. Okay, well, what specific industry do you have the most success with the most customer stories? Is it financial services, manufacturing, high tech? Is it companies that are a billion dollars in revenue more? Is it $200 million in revenue and less? What is that specific makeup? And we call it your ICP, ideal customer profile. Once you have a clear list of those companies you need to target, you then begin to identify the buyer personas within those companies. And that's the step I'm going through right now. When you don't have resources like a Zoom Info or LinkedIn Sales Navigator, these paid tools to identify direct phone numbers, the contact org structure in these accounts, it's very challenging. So you need to get creative and look at websites and potentially reach out to lower level contacts to identify who your buyer persona is. But you need to understand very clearly who your buyer persona is, meaning who is the customer? What is their day-to-day? What are the problems they experience? And how is your solution specifically going to benefit them in their role? Keep in mind, we're not even talking about picking up the phone yet. You got to know who you're calling, why you're calling them very specifically. So think about a restaurant, for example. Their buyer persona is someone that's hungry. And that's that's pretty broad. So we, we could do a couple of different <laughs> examples of a couple of different businesses. But you want to be very clear who your buyer persona is. You want to start to identify in these companies... These specific buyer personas, whether it's a C-level prospect, whether it's a director, so there's different levels in these companies. And then you basically start to find all of these prospects and then add them to your sequence. You Maybe you're fortunate enough to have an outreach or a sales loft so you can manage all these tasks automatically. Mm. Maybe you're using a Google Doc where you're doing it manually. But you want to start to make a list of all the people you want to contact, and then you start calling them. And then we can get into specifically how you approach that, what you do. But I wanted to share that just to really be mindful of of who you're reaching out to day to day, because you, you don't want to waste time calling people that can't actually benefit from your solution. Yeah, totally. And that gets us into a really hotly debated uh, <laughs> part of corner of LinkedIn when it comes to this thing, which is, all right, so you have two approaches to what you just described, which is essentially identifying who you're going to reach out to and then generating your initial list of folks who you're going to target. There's two camps of thought. Camp one is you identify individuals and then research things about them to personalize your outreach to that individual. The other camp of thought is you group people together based on similarities in their job description and their company size, assuming that they have the same challenges and pain points um, so that your outreach can be consistent in terms of what you say to that group of people. Uh, So that's the relevancy approach versus the personalized approach. Between those two, you know, how, how do you think about that as it relates back to cold calling? Meaning, are you in the camp of like, uh, let's go research everyone and then quote that bit of research before I call them? Or let me call segments of people in these lists and just have the relevant pitch that I give to that list of people who have the same job responsibilities. I don't do any research before the calls. So early on it. when I started, I'm That's calling. the right answer. Yeah, <laughs> the right I, answer. It's the biggest mistake I made. It's, and it's such a time waster. And, and given 
this is broadly speaking, if you're an enterprise rep that you're above cold calling or you've got five accounts, you're going to intimately understand those accounts. Right. But if you're calling a thousand different accounts, maybe then, then it's more churn and burn. You're not really as worried about that. That that's why it's, it's so, it's so broad here, but me specifically based on my experience, I did B2B sales. I sold to all industries. And what I did was I understood industries. So I would recommend really understanding the industry you're selling into and your buyer persona, because if you understand those two things, you're basically calling on just these categories of information you already understand. So for example, if you're calling financial services, retail banking, how do the banks bank money? Okay, they need depositors to give them money so they can lend out the money. That is how they make money. And it's it's actually a pretty interesting model. It's what I started to sell to. But you understand the banks, how they make money. Mm. So now you're just calling all these different prospects at these different banks. And if you understand your buyer persona, human resources out of bank, okay, you care about making sure that in, in bank branch locations, a great experience. You care about retaining your knowledge workers and, and you're basically just calling. And while it's ringing, you're just worried about, okay, I need to try and set this meeting. That's all that really matters. So the quick answer is no research, pick up the phone, call. Don't worry about it. It's a hot, spicy take. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it, it could be, but if, if you dispute that, it's like, I don't, I don't see another way around it because I actually did it. And it just doesn't make sense to do it another way because if I can call 50 different companies in a day and you can call 20 different companies a day, maybe you're doing more research, but how much better is your set rate going to be than my set rate? Bingo. When you factor in such a low answer rate. So to me, it's negligible and I would just make the calls. So you, you, you touched on something right there, which is the point that I always make. You know, There's two things I want to say about this. Number one, no matter how much research you do or how much you know about your prospect does not affect whether or not they're going to pick up the actual phone, right? Like the, the, the whole concept of not everybody picks up the phone is the number one confounding variable to your success on the phone. If you're going to, I'm going to make 20 strategic dials today, which is like something I hear people say, I, I don't, I don't cold call. It's dialing for dollars. I, I do strategic dialing. It's like, a cool. You make, tw- you make 20 it's calls and you get like, Two people maybe to pick up, like that doesn't work. The other thing, if we're, if we're talking spicy takes, run in, um, I would say that the people that say that not that, that like doing a lot of research is important are people that don't cold call. Like those are trainers that like, hey, I'll tell you how to do this, but I haven't made a cold call in twelve years. Like the people who don't actually cold call. Well, and so, there's one for, more camp, just the camp of people who come from the sales forces of the world. They have these ex- hyper yes. segmented territory lists. And so yeah. they only have a set number of accounts and people to reach out to. So it is actually never going to be a numbers game for them because they can't play that game yeah. by the nature yep. of either a tiny addressable market in a niche market or a giant company with so many employees. I think Salesforce is, has the most SDRs out of any company in the world. So like if you're an SDR at sales, force, uh, then you you probably only have so many accounts to get after, in which case, all right, maybe there's not a case here for you. But that that's like what? Like got to be a tiny percentage of the actual cold callers of the world. Yeah. And, and, and when given, you call with Salesforce. Uh, and given sorry. this is why I say the territory plan, because you're not just going in completely blind. If you really understand your yeah. industry and you really understand your buyer persona, you, you then have just enough knowledge to be dangerous. And then while you're doing this territory plan and you're identifying these accounts to reach out to, you're at least going to have some idea. Okay, this is where their HQ is. 
Maybe they just made this big acquisition. You just know one little tidbit. You don't need to do a whole analysis on it. But the objective of the call, in my opinion, especially in B2B sales, is just to get the meeting. You're trying to sell time. You're not there to try and persuade them how great your product is or amplify all these problems. You're just trying to get the meeting and then you can do the research and then you can bring that forward to really justify that time investment. But otherwise, the time is better spent actually finding people and contacting them opposed to thinking about how you should contact them. There's a time and a place for each. But given if you have 10 accounts, it's going to be different. But if, but if you're doing a bit more broad, then just you got to put in the activity. Totally agree. Um, we, we think that, you know, that that kind of uh, goes to one of the other questions we get asked a lot, which is like, when's the right time to call? Always. It's always a good time <laughs> like, to call. Yeah. If it's, if there, if it's business hours, <laughs> that's the time to call. I, I'm, on, I'm in that camp. So call more instead of calling less. You learn more. You learn faster. You have a better time. Um, this and has been hey, Kevin, on that, everyone knows that they'll have higher answer rates calling as early as possible and as late as possible. But there's still this social stigma Oh, I don't feel comfortable calling at 5.36 in the afternoon local time. But I'm here to tell you, if you do that, you'll be shocked. You, you'll be surprised. Mm. You'll be like, oh my gosh, they're answering. Like They're a little bit more receptive. So if you can get in close to 7.30 and start calling right around that 7.45-ish time frame, you just got to come in and not look at your email, pull up your outreach and start making calls to start your day. And it will completely change the dynamic of your performance. I love that. All right. So we, uh, we actually like to wrap with a fun rapid fire. So we're going to hit you with some fast questions and, uh, we want, we want the uh, quick response, which hopefully means we get to tap into like the truest trend. All right. So you ready for it? We're going to hit you with a few quick questions here. We'll be as true as possible here. We're here, to tell, <laughs> we're here to tell the truth. I love it. All right. So first one, um, when it comes to your opener, permission-based opener or don't use a permission-based opener. Never permission. Ooh, spicy. Ooh, All right, follow up to that. Permission. You get Come them on, on the phone. What does your opener sound like? Hey, Ronan, this is Trent from Insert Company Name. How are you? Love it. I like oh. it. He's a how are you guy, just like me. Uh, next My one. Two, two routes here. Parallel dialer, allowing you to make multiple calls at once, not just one at a time, or... Do you go with a camp of validated phone, uh, validated leads? So confirming that the number is correct. Which one? We used outreach, which required me to find my own leads. So I had to manually press call and wait for it to ring. If I would have had an auto dialer, I would have tried it out. I've never used it, so I can't really speak to that. But I had to find my own leads, and that's the way I did it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, last one. So uh, prospect says to you, hey, uh, just email me. How do you come back from that? Hey, I definitely could send you an email, but I don't think it'd be the best use of your time or my time. And then I would try and overcome the objection. I love it. Um, I'll actually throw in one bonus question here, which is you go through the great call and they end it with, you know, this all sounds wonderful. Why don't you set something out for like 60 days from now? What do you expect to change between now and then? Ooh, spicy Ooh. challenge. <laughs> on That's a, yeah, it doesn't always work. It sort of exposes them for their bullshit because they're just trying to push it out. But if you call it out, it, at least it gives you a fighting chance to 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 bring it forward and drive more urgency. Heck, because yeah. sometimes they'll they'll tell you something that you had no way of knowing. Oh, because uh, you know my wife's about to have a baby. I'm going to be gone for another half. Well, I didn't know that, right? Yeah, uh, it, they'll, it, they'll tell you things that are 
underneath the curtain, you know? And not all, all objections are worth overcoming, but we're, we're not here to sell you anything. We're not here. We're not trying to change anything. I just want to see if I can help. And I can't do that if we don't meet. Let's just, let's meet. Oh, that is smooth. <laughs> I hope everyone here steals that. that. That is brilliant. That is from the mouth of Trent Dressel, folks. Check him out on YouTube, LinkedIn. <laughs> Where else can they find you? What else do you want the folks to know about you? Yeah, YouTube, LinkedIn. And, and, and just briefly on that is that was the, some of the best advice I got. I was complaining. I was like, everyone I call has something in place that this is impossible. And he's like, hey, you're not looking to change anything. You're just trying to see if you can help. It's partnership. No pressure. That's such a big paradigm shift. I love that. <laughs> awesome. Well, love Trent, it. thank you so much for hopping on. Um, as we try to keep true to our audience, we keep our shows to about like 20, maybe 25 minutes or so. So that's about it for what we have today in store for you. But hopefully we can get Trent back for another one and another one because he's got a lot of wisdom. In the meantime, check him out. Check out his channel on YouTube and LinkedIn and uh, follow Kevin Hop and Ronan Pessar on LinkedIn as well because we've got a lot cooking for you guys too. So thank you guys. Cheers.